I am Rogier van den Brink. This is a podcast about agricultural credit and cooperatives. For this, I spoke to Gerard van Empel, someone who knows agricultural credit very well. For a long time, Gerard was the director of the Rabobank's International Advisory Services. The Rabobank is a Dutch bank and among the 30 largest financial institutions in the world. In 2014, its total assets amounted to 681 billion euros. Did I forget to mention that it was a farmer's cooperative? Maybe that explains why it is one of the safest banks in the world. For instance, during the 2008 crisis, its main competitor in the Netherlands was nationalized. But the Rabobank pretty much sailed through the whole period. I guess farmers don't like to invest in things they don't understand. Before Gerard joined the Rabobank, he worked for the FAO in Malawi. After that, he became agricultural counselor for the Netherlands, first in the United States and later on in China, in the late 1980s, when agriculture took off. He joined the Rabobank in 1989, working in the transition states after the collapse of communism. And after that, he worked basically all over the world. A lot of good things were achieved, Gerard thinks, but cooperative development is still on Gerard's to-do list. What basically has made Dutch agriculture very essential is that the things that a farmer is not good at doing is taken over by organizations. Uh, and they were nearly all cooperatives in those days. Mm. Who did that functionality. And of course they were relatively small. It still helped the farmers a lot. They could concentrate purely on, on their business. And through that they could all, it also helped a lot of specialization. And especially family farms, it's very important to specialize in certain areas. But you can only do that when you have a structure, when you know that you, you can get good rid of your marketable surpluses. And in that context, in Holland, the cooperatives have played a huge role, even today. So you see now today, I mean, in, in Holland, there's, for instance, only one dairy cooperative. And they have 80% of all the milk supply. And today this cooperative also has factories in about 40 countries around the globe, including in developing countries. It's still a dairy cooperative. Initially, of course, the markets were very local. So they could start off in a very small basis. But the big difference in Holland was, even when there were mixed farmers, uh, there were uh, farmers were members of, of a number of cooperatives. So the cooperative did not give all the answers. Huh? Even at the time, they, they, they could be a member of the, the feed cooperative, mm -hmm. a member of the dairy cooperative, and of the credit cooperative. Mm -hmm. So, but they were not, these were not all mixed in one organization because they need their own skill sets, their own structure, and that has helped a lot with later on the further consolidation. When the markets, uh, when the investments were needed uh, to, 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 to process the product a lot further. And uh, scaling is important. 
and in today's world, especially on the market side, that, that is today, it's, it's still the case. Uh, in credit, it was also cooperative. Uh, what, there were two actually, Boer and Lane Bank and, and uh, Raiffeisen Bank. And in 72 they merged. But in each village, they had a small credit cooperative. Which How a lot did that start? That started by some of the richer farmers to get together. Uh, because there were no banks. So they put some money into it which they could be borrowed out to others. Uh, what was unique worldwide even, and even today, it started with no capital. It started on a liability system. So a joint liability. A joint liability, and it was based on the value of land. See, because farmers, when they owned land, they had an excess of, uh, you say, assets. Uh, but they lacked liquidity. So that's how it was started in a very... They opened up to the whole community and that's very important because some people have an excess of liquidity, other, other you know, uh, need loans. But you see that also where the, the cooperative system, the cooperative banks have been in, traditionally be much more successful in economic development, to support economic development than traditional credit unions, which are basically based on a certain trade or so, and the credit unions basically came from the labor union, uh, from the labor movements. So they have quite a di very different concept. You have to be a member to bank with the, with the entity. Well, if you just want to have current account and, 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 and uh, get, uh, savings in there, why should you become a member? It, it creates an extra burden. In the legislation in Holland, there's a very short legislation, which allows for a lot of flexibilities in the articles of association, based on the specific needs of a, of, of a cooperative. Well, in most countries, and I think, and even there, I think the, the World Bank has still played a, not such a good role, to be very honest. No. They have a very detailed cooperative legislation, which is all based on the old ICU principles. The ICU, ICA, ICA, the International Cooperative Alliance, which says, for instance, one man, one vote. The traditional ICA legislation is more based on consumer cooperatives. Uh, where you go for a shop, but for agriculture cooperative, it doesn't fit. Yeah, you do some form of proportionality. Or you, and in the Dutch law, that's all allowed. Again, it's the members who decide, eh? it's, uh, the members decide in their own articles. But you can do that. And if you do it smartly, you also make sure that no particular group has the majority. 
So it is proportional, but it doesn't have to be linear. But what is important is that the people who contribute most to the cooperative and to the business have a bit more votes than the people who do less. That's the only way that larger farmers is also attractive to, to join cooperatives. What we see worldwide is people form cooperative with the smallest. Basically NGOs, etc. But they can they can never have the volume to have professional management, etc. And, and we should be also clear, I mean, for commercial companies, they always target also the larger ones. So if the cooperative is not competitive, you need to get rid of all these, the legislation which is very restrictive, and allow a lot more flexibility for people to write their own articles of association which resembles, let's say, the situation in, in a, a particular area in order to create more creativity. I was, um, about 15 years ago, I was in Brazil. And there also we had a discussion. And this was less or more a multi-purpose cooperative. But what it came out, when I analyzed the figures, 20% of the farmers did 80% of the business with the cooperative, while the other 80% had to add a power. That's not fair. And also you see there, and that's in Brazil, which is quite a developed agriculture country, you see that all the larger farmers that don't join cooperative. But it has very much to do, the rest of the world has very much to do with, with the, the, uh, the initial focus. A, that they are very tied in and not flexible, also through the legislation. And B, that also in, in development they are too much seen as social instruments. So, and also they are not attractive for the larger, the better producers. And, and that is an important uh, hampering point. Get rid of all this directive uh, legislation and allow a lot more in terms of people making their own structures. See, India is, is a particular case in this, in this. In India, the cooperative legislation, which also is very much based on UK, where it, it's the same problem, uh, but there it's also a state uh, responsibility, not from the national government. So it's impossible to get it changed. So a number of years ago, the Minister of Agriculture, I had a long talk, he came to Holland, we had a long talk about it. So they made a new law, they, they call it producer company law. Mm. And the producer companies are actually very much ref reflective of what the mod modern cooperative legislation is. So that helped. So there you have a number of now successful producer companies. Yeah, and then put a different form of legislation on that. Because even in the UK, I, I did there, after the Milk Marketing Board was brought, 
open up and I developed some cooperatives there, dairy cooperatives. Then I needed a special permission to, uh, to get an exemption from the law on terms of the voting right. Because there was also the same issue. You had very large farmers and you had small farmers. And giving them the same vote would not have helped them also in the capitalization model what would be introduced there. So having this form of legislation does not help cooperative development. That's definitely. We talk about property rights. Gera thinks that title deeds are important, but if the transactions costs of foreclosing are too high, or there are social controls over the sale of land, title deeds do not mean much. He also thinks that collateral is not really the problem. Payment capacity is the problem, especially to be able to serve as longer-term credit. And to be able to do this, interest rate spreads need to go down. But if default rates are high, these spreads will also be high, and thus farmers will face difficulties repaying longer-term credit and investing in better technology. Title deeds, I think, are important. Uh, but, uh, but in most places in Africa, a title deed doesn't mean anything. Not so much that the deed is not good, but if it's socially unacceptable, that you sell this land, it, the, the value is zero. But I don't think that is the problem. The payment capacity is the issue. The and, and as I said earlier, especially payment capacity for very small. I mean, if I can hardly survive now, uh, <coughs> how can I repay a credit? But especially, for on the medium and, and longer term loans. And that is where the big improvement for, uh, for getting better production will lie in. I mean, short term credit is not such an issue. But for medium term credit, and that has to do with a high interest rate. To make it then, to have sufficient payment capacity is, 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 is a difficult one. I think where, where the biggest problem lies, and that has more to do with interest rates, the biggest problem lies with medium and long-term credit. Uh, and because especially when you have to pay a rate of 20-25%, uh, the, the payment capacity goes hugely down. See, on the short-term loan, if I have to pay uh, 20, 25 percent interest rate for a six-month loan, that is still manageable. Right. But on a medium and long-term loan, it becomes very, very difficult to make it bankable. And if one does not have these available, it is very difficult to increase the business and to improve it in a technological sense. So for me, the biggest bottleneck lies there. The interest rates are a lot higher in Africa, in general, term, in general, 
than we have ever known over the last hundred years in countries like Holland or Germany or the United States. But it is an issue. And partly it has to do with uh, marginal loans or very high because of high transaction costs plus a lot of loan losses. See, in the history of Rabobank, we had never had more than 1% uh, NPLs on agriculture loans in the Netherlands. But in a lot of countries in Africa, we see 10, 15% NPLs. But partly has to do with the loan granting process, yeah. and that you give loans to people who are not capable to pay, but there's also sometimes an unwillingness to pay. Huh? So, I mean, and uh, the legal process in terms of forcing people to pay is, 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 is very difficult. In Holland, it's very relatively easy to take possession if you, if you default. The fact that it's very easy you makes it that you hardly have to use it. Because also people realize that. And in a lot of countries, that is very, very difficult. And you have to go through an enormous process, a legal process, which is also a huge cost factor. Uh, we have to, in the Western world, uh, you normally work with spreads of about 2%. So you need an efficient, very efficient system. 2 to 3% is actually the spread. Uh, but in a lot of African countries, when you look at the, also an agricultural land, you look at spreads of 15%. In the uh, traditional microfinance, it went up to, it could, it could go up to, to 30%. To 30%. Yeah. Uh, and we work with these small spreads. Always have done. Uh, but that means you need a very high uh, repayment rate and you need to, to operate very efficiently. Making it easy to take possession is... is, is, is yeah, it's, it's very important. Especially first to get the payment mor uh, repayment morale up. Again, if, if there's been a real problem, and then you know the person, I mean, we of course restructure loans. We've done that also a lot. Or somebody has some bad luck, you restructure loan. You don't take possession, you restructure it. But the, the, the high uh, NPLs in Africa, but also in a lot of other development countries, have very much to do with repayment morale. Of course, also poor judgment on, on, on payment capacity, but also on repayment morale and the, and the legislation. And payment capacity has very much to do with efficiencies in supply chain. Because in the end, when supply chains are very efficient, uh, people get a higher percentage of the consumer price than when you have insufficient, inefficient supply chains. And that, I think, were, were, were the crux lies. But the, and here I come back on specialization, especially for smaller farms, only specialized smaller farms you can put better into a supply chain in, the, in an efficient supply chain <coughs> than mixed farming.
structures, a farmer by himself, except when they're very big, <coughs> otherwise they, they can never be good in marketing, etc. So without the offtake structures, you can never get a good development in agriculture. But you also need supporting structures, being it research, being it input suppliers, especially from specific seeds, etc. Now, that in Holland has developed very well. I mean, we, even today, a lot of the vegetable seeds are still produced in Holland. Flower seeds, new innovations come all through, in these sectors, are very much driven in Holland because they have a very good support service, being it fundamental research in agriculture, but also companies which are taking that further on to make a product which is directly used by the farmer. And in the past, <coughs> extension services have played a role. Today, less, because most of the extension now comes through specialized supply chain companies. Well, in the past, that was a government service. Uh, the same with applied research. It was also done in the past a lot by the government. Today, there's a lot less. Uh, today, there's, uh, all the, the large co-ops also have their own advisory service. But that's today, because now they're large enough. Yeah. Before the Republic. And then you had the, the fundamental research done by universities like Wageningen. Yeah, and you had applied research stations. Yeah. But also, of course, uh, companies are doing that. Huh? Being the supply chain manager is not the input supplier. And, and that is uh, also, I think, what we see in developing countries today still, that they look at the input suppliers partly as a supply chain manager, while basically the supply chain manager the off-taker. And on the off-taker, you can link the credit to. Because in the end, the income comes from the sales. And the, the credit repayment comes from the sales. So I think that's also something which one needs to, uh, to look at a lot more closely. But the, there's a lot of chicken and egg in here. Uh, because at the initial stage, before you can have effective uh, supply chain managers in a certain product, you need also certain volumes. And that's what, the score, of course, is lacking. And credit by itself, as I said, is one of the inputs. But the proper structure of getting the output uh, out sold and to get a reasonable percentage of, the, of the, the end price, that is the crux because that's where your payment capacity comes from. And without that, it's, uh, it always remains marginal. For agriculture development, and also for your credit risk, having proper supply chains is crucial. And otherwise you have to, and also as a financial institution, uh, you have to, uh, to be very, very prudent in terms of where you're gonna give credit. Uh, and that, uh, because as a financial institution, you are responsible also for, for your own balance sheet.
think the World Bank made huge mistakes in a place like Russia uh, with IMF because they thought they could do things different than the Chinese. The Chinese did the bottom-up, the, the transformation from, let's say, completely collective structure into a more market-based. Hmm? They first started with agriculture, SMEs, slowly they developed uh, financial markets and then they brought some of the, the state companies to the, to the stock exchange. In Russia, on the Yeltsin initially, there was a lot of advice being followed, including from Jeffrey Sachs, etc. That's how the voucher system was created. That's where the oligarch came from. And I warned them, I said, don't do that. I mean, there was no system to, of notary systems to, to, to where these vouchers were registered, there was no market for it. But this was initiated by IMF World Bank. And this is where the, some of the, the, there was so much eagerness to, to get into and do it very differently from what the Chinese did, which, which up to now I think not based, I'm not saying on a political system, but in terms of changing the economy from what it was, has been one of the most successful ways of doing it more so than what we've seen in a lot of other Eastern, Eastern European countries. And what I think... Does also affect agriculture? Like yes, yes. Also there was, there was no structure for it either. I mean many of these uh, state farms were also on partly voucher systems were also uh, distributed. And at the same time we also have to realize and also, the, their, the, the, the support structures failed. The Chinese kept the support structures in place when they started to, to, to privatize the state farms. Mm -hmm. uh, so the input supply, et cetera, and all these uh, credit suppliers, et cetera, they kept that all in place. Well, in Russia, it all collapsed, which didn't help, to be very honest. But that's the past. Uh, the problem, of course, with the World Bank is, uh, IFC is slightly different, but the World Bank has to throw to governments. I think you know, the, 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 the World Bank today is, uh, is still too much focused on generic uh, uh, policies and has difficulties to look at, you know, specific situations and adopt things. Uh, in a more modern way. There's still too many dogmas. It also has to do with, with the, the procedures where they go about. Yeah, I always find very good people on the ground many times, but when it has to go through the whole circle of, of the World Bank. But why, what, what are some of those dogmas that you encounter? The dogmas, if I look at that legislation and, and these sort of things, I mean, even in not so long ago, I, I was involved in Albania where I actually uh, merged all the, the credit unions into one organization. Mm -hmm. The World Bank was working at that time on, on legislation which did not fit at all this structure. Mm -hmm. So in the end, be before the second reading of parliament, nobody wanted to change that, but I could want, uh, and, uh, change one sentence. That is, that the central bank could um, could 
deviate from what was written in, in the legislation. Through that, I could, the system could, could be worked out. But that is where I think where, 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 where we, we, we still look far too much, where we don't look enough at this specific situation and being creative. That is the worst thing if you look at best practices. You're, uh, you don't look at that and at the specific situation in, in the specific country. And, 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 and that is with many of these things. I think on the ground there's a lot of smart people, but in a way they're a little bit afraid of what they get back from Washington. Where, of course, there are experienced people, but one has to be very careful to not understanding the specific situation in, in a specific country, uh, to, to, to interfere too much. And I feel that is still happening too much. Uh, there's a, yeah, Af Africa itself, uh, it, it, it's a continent, and there is a lot of variation, which one, one I think that's what one should recognize first when one talks too much about Africa. Well, in actual fact, you should talk about individual countries. So it, I think what you, you, it has to be more tailor-made. I think that, that is the name of the game. This then was the interview with Gerard van Empel, a practitioner of agricultural credit with a vast global experience. We started with a look back at the development of Dutch agriculture. What made it so successful? Gerard recounted how mixed farmers supplying local markets became highly specialized business partners in efficiently run global supply chains. Cooperatives played a huge role in this which should come as a surprise to many of us. For instance, in most countries that I have worked in, people simply roll their eyes as soon as you mention the word. Not so in the Netherlands, because there, farmer cooperatives became successful multinational businesses and now include one of the largest banks in the world. Gerard explains their success as follows. Co-op members were first of all business partners. They decided on the governance of their co-op themselves. Legislation was minimal. Cooperative governance in the Netherlands was not dictated from on high by detailed national legislation on how cooperatives should be run. One of the outcomes of this was that in the Netherlands, voting rights were not based on the one-man, one-vote principle. Instead, a member's voting rights were based on his marketing volume. This made the Dutch agricultural cooperatives responsive to and attractive for large farmers who, in turn, are attractive for the buyers of agricultural produce. Unfortunately, according to Gerard, in international development, these Dutch success factors are often ignored. Co-ops are often multi-purpose. Cooperative legislation is dictated by the state. It's highly detailed, based on a one-man, one-vote principle, reflecting a political vision in which cooperatives play a social rather than an economic role. 
and in far too many places until recently co-ops were basically run by the government and now have difficulty shaking this legacy. Credit cooperatives were also big in the Netherlands. The scaling up of the operations of successful farmers required the supply of medium-term credit at reasonable interest rates. Dutch farmers organized these cooperatives themselves, although allowing others to open banking accounts without becoming members. And this gave farmers access to the liquidity of others. The relatively low interest rates on medium-term credit simply derived from the good repayment discipline of the farmers to their own cooperative. This is why the system historically never had to deal with non-performing loans of more than 1% of the total. It kept rates low. And this allowed farmers to have access to the affordable medium-term loans they needed to invest in more productive farms. In passing, Gerard does critique international organizations such as the World Bank for not being sufficiently aware of these issues. The quality of its staff is not the issue. The issue is the centralized bureaucratic processes that often bias towards international quote-unquote best practice. I hope that Gerard's insights will help first to redefine what that best practice actually is and second to make us aware of the importance of the local conditions so that we can adapt, not adopt that practice successfully. In the end, this interview brings home some important lessons for agricultural development anywhere in the world. I hope you've liked it. This was a podcast by Rogier van den Brink. The music is by Anansi Sisse, a musician from Mali very much affected by the troubles in the Sahel. Please support him.